and welcome to Hitting Play, the podcast where we review, analyze, and discuss shows, movies, and other curiosities. I am Scott, and joining me to help forge a new episode in Fire and Blood is Hamish. Hamish, welcome back. Hi, it's me, Hamish, here to forge things. <laughs> That's in that Fire the, and Blood. Yeah, but like, I, I, that'd be a great in, intro to any kind of villain. Because like every villain, even in like the old cartoons, always has to have that kind of, I'm dramatic, here I am. But if a normal guy just turns up going, hi guys, I'm here to murder you all, you would, you'd, be, you'd be fine. You'd be like, oh, okay. <laughs> it seems reasonable enough. That's true. But yeah, this is, uh, we get a lot of dialogue like this uh, this week. Mm. Well, in anticipation of the release of X-Men Apocalypse, which is, of course, the newest installment in the X-Men cinematic franchise, this week we watched Come the Apocalypse. It was the 10th episode of X-Men, the 90s animated series, and it originally aired on Fox's Saturday morning's Fox Kids block, February 27th, 1993. Now, this is the second cartoon series to bear the name X-Men. Uh, the first was a failed series from 1989. It never really made it past the pilot episode, which was entitled Pride of the X-Men. Uh, now, for a complete breakdown of Pride of the X-Men and a brief history of the X-Men in animation, uh, please see our Pride of the X-Men episode where Sean and I had a blast poking fun at uh, all the <laughs> crazy elements of that episode. There's nothing crazy about an Australian Wolverine, I gotta say. <laughs> nothing wrong with that. I wish I wish that was the standard that he was Australian the entire time. I mean, there's you no... You got that many years later. <laughs> yeah, many years later, I know, but uh, think about it. I mean, if Hugh Jackman got the role of Wolverine and just using his Australian accent, that would... Well, probably be very weird, but, you know. <laughs> also, the guy who would replace him would also have to do an Australian accent. But then again, at the moment, it seems like anybody who's English can be Spider-Man, so, you know. Yeah. Or you could be Superman if you're English. That's true. It well, doesn't matter. I don't know. I think it's weird that you have two iconic characters in comic books who are both played by English actors. What happened? The thing is, I think it's pretty easy for them to do American accents, mm. and I think it's pretty easy to fool us into thinking <laughs> that they're American. So, uh, yeah, it's easy, easy money. <laughs> <laughs> That's it. So the, even the most American-American can't be an American hero character. It just can't happen. It all depends. It, it, the accent doesn't matter in the audition is what we find. <laughs> uh, as, I, as I mentioned earlier in, this, uh, in an earlier episode of this podcast, I didn't know Gillian Anderson was British until an embarrassingly long time later. <laughs> what do you mean embarrassingly? Like, what did you do? Did you like say, like, she is the greatest... Living American ever. No, no. <laughs> no, but I mean, X-Files, I had seen episodes here and there throughout whatever, nine years or however long it was on the air. Not till recently when they brought back the series and she did some interview. I'm like, what? Where was I? I didn't realize this. You didn't see any of the other stuff she did for BBC? No, of course not. We don't get any of those. Oh, yeah, I forgot. Here. You guys don't have a proper, was it BBC channel? BBC America? BBC America airs The Matrix and uh, <laughs> Star Trek The Next Generation. That's pretty much it. Is this the British Matrix? <laughs> Where they have to keep putting money into the meter just to keep back, you know, stay in the system? I, I think it's because that, that uh, great British actor Hugo Weaving is in that trilogy. So oh, yeah. That's he, why. <laughs> he, he's the greatest. He's either or a German actor or a villain. Anything you like, really. But, you know, that great... English actor Hugo Weaving. <laughs> but anyway, 
the, that X-Men episode, it, it was... It was quaint, you know, it had that 80s style to it, and really nothing happened to it past its one airing, and it completely resulted in nothing. But one person was very much in favor of it, and this was somebody named Margaret Loesch, and she just so happened to become the head of Fox's children's programming later on in 1991, and when she did take over that role, she immediately gave X-Men a 13-episode order. So this kind of revived the franchise. Of course, it does not look anything like that original pilot episode. Wolverine does not have an Australian accent for no reason. Uh, so we get this uh, new look. Uh, we get the Jim Lee costume designs that were at the comics at that time. And from there, it went on to air for 75 episodes over five seasons from October 31st, 1992, all the way to a kind of lousy episode that aired on September 20th, 1997, where Professor X needs to uh, go to the Shi'ar homeworld because he doesn't feel good, and the X-Men are left on their own in an episode entitled Graduation Day. Why did you make, make it sound suspicious? <laughs> it's like, oh, guys, I have to leave and go to the Shi'ar Empire because I'm not feeling good. It, it was a total uh, Poochie going back to his homeworld type moment. There's nothing wrong with Poochie going back to his home world. He's an alien dog. It all made sense. <laughs> I have to go now. My planet needs me. And just because he, there was no real animation for him leaving, it's just him sliding out of the frame. It's great. Yeah, yeah. They just lifted the cell. That, that's, that's, that's his <laughs> magical abilities. That's actually become the major thing now. And they updated that joke on Futurama where it's like, I have to, I have to leave that. My planet needs me. That's if you want to leave a room. And the other one is, I don't want to I wasn't live on this planet anymore. Now, Hamish, did this air for you in the, the 90s in Australia, like when it came out over here? Yeah, uh, we actually got these episodes shown to us on the kids' morning show Cheese TV, which aired here in Australia with uh, the host Jaden Ryan, who at the moment are, ha are having kind of a resurgence because everybody loves nostalgia, and strangely enough, thanks to you know, Facebook and all that stuff, uh, they decided to start posting old episodes of their TV show on Facebook. Mm -hmm. But uh, yeah, this show, uh, the X-Men, along with... Was it the Fantastic Four, uh, the Iron Man show, and mm -hmm. Spider-Man, the animated series? Yeah, they all uh, like basically either ran together. Depending on how they did it, they always did like a, a Marvel block, so like an hour. Like the mm -hmm. they originally did the whole was it Fantastic Four, Iron Man, Marvel hour thing, and then they when they started having X Men, they had X Men and Spider-Man or Spider-Man X Men, depending on which way it went. Uh, but yeah, we used to get it down here usually in the mornings. And I know it's not exactly the most exciting show to watch for a kid in the mornings. <laughs> because some of that stuff, some of the, the topics that they did cover were yeah, pretty adult. And it's interesting because you didn't really absorb it, that sort of stuff when you're a kid. Especially when you're trying to get to school early in the morning. And, you're, and this is the days where you used to have the clock in the top right corner or left corner of the screen showing what time it was. Because you had to get ready for school before <laughs> you know, your parents yelled at you. So you couldn't... Right. You're sitting there... Uh, watching X-Men and then the ad break turn comes on you quickly go get your shoes put those on and then come back and you start watching the rest of the X-Men uh, and then it's like nearly you know five to eight and then you're like I gotta leave I gotta go and then you run out the door you know? <laughs> right right but uh, yeah that's when we used to see it well that's cool yeah it, we had them you know they would air Saturday mornings but then you'd get the reruns especially later on when you get you know in syndication and a lot of channels would show them you know just like you with before school so you could catch Spider-Man Fantastic Four, uh, on different channels. For us, uh, Fantastic Four and Iron Man premiered on different channels as the Marvel Action Hour, mm -hmm. 
And then the uh, Spider-Man and X-Men series aired Saturday mornings on Fox. But, you know, later on, you could catch them in the mornings almost on a daily basis. Yeah, and that's the thing. Like, when you get older and you realize that, hey, I can record things, you realize you've just been a chump your entire life. <laughs> where, it's just, <laughs> well, where it's just like, I could have just gone to school early. Which is actually not a phrase I don't think I've ever said. But when you get old and you realize that, you know, you could just record things, you know, you realize you shouldn't be in a hurry just to watch X-Men. I got into that kind of trap when I was watching Dragon Ball Z because that goes on forever. Yeah, I never got into that one personally. I did for maybe like a couple of seasons and then I was just like, this is this is just too long. This is going forever. <laughs> I miss the days of, you know, cartoons just being like X-Men or Spider-Man where they had a story and either if it was a complex story, it'd be a two-part episode or they'd stretch it to three episodes. But the, yeah. but the story would still be kind of self-contained. You could watch it by itself. Yeah, but this uh, this episode that we watched for this episode of the podcast, this was a big one in this series because uh, this was the introduction of the character of Apocalypse. This was a, a character that made many more appearances throughout the whole run of the show. And uh, viewers, at this point of the series, they've already been introduced to such villains as Magneto, Sabretooth, especially the Sentinels, to start the series. And this was a completely new threat that the X-Men had to face in Apocalypse. He was He was really a person that, at this time anyway, could not be defeated. So it was really hard for them to figure out exactly how to deal with a threat like this. But he does get defeated. He can't, he, well, can't, he can't be defeated. Yes, his plans can be thwarted. That's that's true. But as far as, you know, having a vulnerability that they can exploit to, you know, defeat him, it's, it's near impossible with Apocalypse. Eh, kind of. I mean, I, I, they do... Hey, what's the difference between thwarting and defeating? Well, what I'm trying to say is you're never going to see any of these villains get killed in the cartoon, obviously. But, uh, you know, as we'll get into in this episode, you can kind of reason with Magneto. Him and Professor X have a similar background. And uh, there are times in which they do kind of side with uh, Magneto or Magneto sides with the X-Men. There's there's times in which the Juggernaut can uh, revert back to a, a more human form. Uh, with the, uh, you know, when he doesn't have that mm. ruby. So there's there's ways of, of getting around these characters and kind of stopping them from whatever their evil plans are. But Apocalypse is just uh, uh, so super powerful and a complex menace that, uh, you know, his plans usually involve space and time and sometimes uh, leaving time altogether. And, you know, it's just uh, so overwhelming that the X-Men sometimes, in some episodes, have to just fire him off into space. <laughs> so I like that that's the only way it's like they're like do you know what his, his plan is time space he wants to go through time and kill us but then make us monsters do you know let's just send him into space that'd be a good idea yeah <laughs> basically I'm guessing that's Cyclops' plan and then like Professor Xavier comes in and says what are you doing it's like nothing we're just gonna fight Apocalypse he's like okay wait you gonna send him to space again it's like no no just, we're really going to fight him this time, and we're totally going to beat him and, def- and thwart him. Just <laughs> not the sun. Yeah, you know, we're not going to space. We're not going to throw him to sun or anything, or send him to space. I mean, yeah, that'd be that'd be too easy. <laughs> so yeah, it has to be done pretty bloodlessly in the cartoon. So it's interesting to see what actually the X Men have to do to kind of stop him from. His evil plans, but, you know, we'll, we'll get it more into that here. Actually show any blood or maiming, and so Wolverine has to be dialed down. Yes, very dialed down Wolverine. Yeah, it's like, ah, I'm gonna fight you, and he jumps towards somebody, or just kind of 
attacks robots a lot mm -hmm. or cuts guns in half. That's I remember that a lot happening in the series. Oh, yes, very much so. But yeah, that's why the Sentinels were such a great, ominous threat for the X-Men to face, because then Wolverine could just go up and just start slicing and dicing and hacking their heads off because they're just completely made of uh, metal. Mm. Now, some background information here on the character of Apocalypse, since he's, you know, really trending right now. Uh, he first appeared in X-Factor number 5 and 6. Uh, number 5 was a cameo appearance. Uh, towards the end, and number six was his, in fact, full appearance. In, in X-Factor number five, he appeared as the mysterious leader of the short-lived group called the Alliance of Evil. That kind of fizzled out, really. Uh, originally, this was intended to be the Owl, the, the Daredevil villain, but Louise Simonson was the writer. She had created this new, super-powerful villain for the X-Factor series, and this is where he made his introduction. Now, Apocalypse is a super powerful, immortal mutant with the ability to alter his form. He, uh, in the comics, merged himself with celestial technology, which is why he's kind of robotic in appearance as well. He strictly adheres to his personal credo of survival of the fittest. And to help him with his plans of world domination and the destruction of the weak, he always appoints four people as his horsemen. Now, later, there was some more background material written about him, including his backstory as a, a child in ancient Egypt, where he was an outcast known as En Sabah Nur, which they say is a translation of the first one. It's really not, but that's what they say it is, so we'll just go with it. And that's supposed to be a reference of him being the first mutant. So he's the first space pharaoh mutant. Yeah, well, something like that. <laughs> Space Pharaoh. See, that'd be a better name than Apocalypse. If someone came up to me, like, I mean, Apocalypse sounds like he's in a band. It just sounds like he's, like, the lead singer of some sort of industrial metal band. Like, I'm Apocalypse. Yes. I was like, <laughs> yeah, mate, sure, you're cool. But if someone came up to me and said he's some sort of, was it, Space Mutant? Like, Space Mutant. That would, conf that would I'd, I'd be befuddled. That was it. Yes. You know, I'd have befuddlements <laughs> and say, cool, Space Mutant. Again, I'd try and work out a joke if he was some sort of disco inferno guy i assume yes you know has some sort of funky van with disc disco <laughs> music for some reason he's getting yeah sorry, now he's getting scarier for some reason all i can think about how would i best insult a guy who's going to kill me that's it that's all i can think of i would say probably not doing that is your best idea well again if mr sinister came after me i'd still think he's in some sort of 80s band because i'd be thinking of mr mr yes <laughs> I was like, I'm Mr. Sinister. It's like, what, Mr. Mister kicked you out? <laughs> the names are a little lame, that's true. Uh, they're not a little lame, they're fine. They're just different than normal yeah, names. And, and Apocalypse is really kind of reminiscent of the DC villain Darkseid, which even that's kind of a stupid name. And Darkseid hails from the planet Apocalypse, uh. which is spelt a little different. Everybody, you know, did that clever misspelling of the names. But, uh, yeah. <laughs> How clever was that? Just misspelling names. It's supposed to be extreme, right? Yeah. And the kids... You gotta end everything with an X or a Z. Yeah, because kids love that. Love misspelling. <laughs> they love going to school and misspelling. <laughs> so, just going back to the character of Apocalypse. <laughs> in the comics, basically, throughout history, he's traveled the world. He's always schemed for power. 
He's been worshipped, and he rests with these periods of inactivity, kind of recharging his batteries. Um, you know, jamming himself in uh, a USB port of sorts <laughs> every so often. <laughs> That's why he has the four horsemen. It's like, one of you, plug me in. Just use the, <laughs> get all those tubes. <laughs> just use the double adapter. No, no, that one. That's connected to my toaster. <laughs> now... At one point in the comics, the the other X-Men villain that you mentioned, Mr. Sinister, which I I think uh, he's also known as Nathaniel Essex, so to call him that is a little more um, dignified, but uh, uh, Mr. Sinister attempts to create a person strong enough to destroy Apocalypse, and this ends up being Cyclops' son, known as Nathan Summers, and to thwart his plans, Apocalypse infects the baby Nathan with the techno-organic virus and yada yada yada. The baby comes back from the future as Cable. And it's just, you know, storyline after storyline with that. Now, I only include this stuff and mention it because it'll be relevant to the movies. But for now, we should just probably focus on the episode. Yes. <laughs> I, I I do like the fact that, you know, Cable, in a way, was this... Was it, he's a... Um... He's the future son of Scott Summers and goes back in time to meet his own father before he's even had the kid. No, I think he does. I think he I think he comes back after Yeah, no, he does, in fact, because then they send <laughs> baby Nathan to the future. As we all do. And then well, and then they make a clone of the baby, a healthy clone of the baby. That that ends up becoming Strife, who mm. resents his life. And then Cable is Raised by the clan Azkani or Azkani, whatever, the, however you pronounce it, and that's uh, led by the the old Rachel Summers, who is Cyclops and Jean Grey's daughter from the Days of Future Past storyline, from that timeline. And then she has like this order of like priestesses or whatever that take care of Cable. And once he is, you know, in a oh, and actually, what they do is then they take the the minds of Cyclops and Jean Grey and bring them into the future and transfer them into host bodies, where they actually spend. Actually, it's on their honeymoon. Now that I think about it, that they <laughs> their minds are taken from them, and they are brought into these host bodies where they're known as Red and Slim. And they spend that time raising baby Nathan so that you know he has his parents. And then, uh, then they come back, and this is like a little a four issue mini series. Mm. Their minds come back, and in their minds, uh, they had been gone for eighteen years, but in actuality, it was like you know a day or a few hours or whatever. So then, I think Cable, in continuity, I think Cable comes back after that. It's very confusing, and uh, what are you talking about confusing? You 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 just put it out there. It sounds simple, easy enough. Future baby, clone <laughs> brother. Daughter, future daughter, mind swap into future, and then back again? S- yeah. Seems pretty simple to me. That's as simple as it gets, actually. <laughs> it, it Sorry. Is. No, 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 I, I understand. I mean, comics, comics are like that. There's no set structure for how things work. It's like how Wolverine's on every X-Men team for some reason, and then mm-hmm. Spider-Man's in like three teams at the same time. It's kind, sure. of, it's kind of like that, where, you know, the whole idea of like, oh, we'll have issue after issue of future... Nathan being taken care of by his parents whose minds have been put into surrogate bodies. But back in the story, it's like, oh, they're only away for a minute or two, which is like two issues. That's it. Yeah. 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 Uh, but yeah, I, I do like how Cable is literally the epitome. If you ever see original uh, drawings of him, he's the epitome of the 90s heroic, all manly, all pouches, massive guns. 
structure of the 90s hero. He's a Rob Liefeld classic, and that's, yeah. Yeah. Pouches everywhere. Yeah. Uh, and Rob Liefeld has a, was it creative control over the character? To the point that he didn't like them doing something. He did, they did something with the character. Like, they wanted to put him in an excellent book, but he said no. And then they decided he wanted to have Deadpool and Cable put together. And the reason about was, was just for, uh, I think it was like legal rights. He wanted to re- retain the two characters. So he put them together in a book. Oh, interesting. I hadn't heard that. Yeah, from what I remember, it's like, that's why you have the Cable and Deadpool series, because those are his characters, and he decided to put them together, because I guess for legal reasons, and he, you know, he didn't like what Marvel were doing with Cable separately, and yeah, put them together. I'm sure there's a whole other situation behind all that, just like a Steve, mm-hmm. Steve Ditko situation, you know, with the rights of Spider-Man and all that stuff. But sure. uh, yeah, during that time... Uh, if you look at his original design, yeah, he's all pouches, he's guns, he's muscles, he's the, you know, <laughs> extreme hero character. That's what he was at that time when he first came out in the comic books. Uh, but when you see him in the TV show, he's a little bit, he, he's still got the huge shoulder pads and the huge guns, but, you know, he's, he's dialed down a little bit. Yeah, and it's funny to see him. Yeah, he does show up in this cartoon. And uh, it's 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 interesting. It's hard to to take all of these crazy comic storylines and try to cram them into this X Men series because, like you said, this is kind of heavy and complicated material geared towards mainly children. Mm. So yeah, this is a it's a difficult task, and and they did a pretty good job of it, I'd say. All right, so let's get right into this episode. We start with previously on X Men. And of course, that's the voice of Cyclops. And and this happens quite a bit because even though these are mostly self-contained episodes, they always seem to connect into one another. There are four episode arcs. There's three episode arcs. Sometimes there's six episode arcs. uh, But even the self-contained episodes still need, you need a little background information of how we got to this point. So uh, we got a couple of scenes here that we see where the X-Men have learned about a man named Dr. Gottfried Adler. He claims to be able to reverse genetic mutations, and really, the X-Men's reaction to this news is divided. Rogue secretly wants a cure for her powers, because whenever she touches another person, she really drains their life force, or if they're mutant, their powers. And Wolverine really views this as, you know, a terrible thing, and any mutants that would want this cure, is they're traitors. So we get another scene where Rogue secretly makes a trip to Muir Island in Scotland to visit Dr. Adler, find out for herself what's going on. And while there, she encounters other mutants like Pyro. Uh, We get a scene where he tries to pick her up at a bar, but she ends up throwing him through a wall. It's just every time Pyro comes on, he's got the most strongly Australian accent, like the most cartoony. I know it's a cartoon, but like he's he's accent. And I know his character's supposed to be Australian as well. Yes. uh, In a comic books, but like... (laughs) It, it, it's so annoying that we can never really have a proper Australian hero. We don't have an Australian comic book hero. I think, was it in um, DC, there's like uh, Captain Boomerang, who's mm-hmm. Australian, and he's a villain. And then you have Pyro, who's also a villain. It's like, what? what? where are the heroes? Apparently, <laughs> these, there's even a Captain Britain in uh, you know, Marvel Comics. There is yes. no Australian character, hero character at all. Yeah, I was going to ask how you feel about this, especially his characterization where he's just like, Hello, love! You know, it's like this terrible <laughs> Australian accent. Which that's, just the, like, that's the normal accent you hear when, when you're in an yeah. Australian bar. There's always one guy who sounds like that. You know, Hi, I'm Pyro. Yeah, sounds exactly like that. I'm Pyro. <laughs> you want to get a drink? That's right. I'm belittling women. G'day. You know, it's like... <laughs> 
shrimp on the barbie and all that. Yeah, that's that's usually his line as he walks into a room. He walks in, opens the door, and goes shrimp on a barbie. <laughs> Uh, and uh, I hate to say it, but in that Pride of the X-Men, I do believe either Wolverine or Pyros is, is, makes a reference to shrimp on a Barbie, so <laughs> we're not that far off. <laughs> yeah, uh, I, th- I think more or less that, that it's like, it has, has to be said for some reason. Yeah. I don't know why. I like the, I, I can't think of anyone else who's ever said, like, in my normal life, living in Australia, no one's ever said, put another shrimp on the Barbie. You either put, say, could you cook those shrimp, or let's get those shrimp on the barbecue right now because it looks like it's four o'clock and we want to make sure this food's done by five. Um, <laughs> but no one's really said, like, get another shrimp on the barbie. If you have shrimp on your barbie, you have enough. Don't put another one. If you've seen the size of shrimp, they're big, but if you're putting another one on there, you haven't planned out your meal yet. So it's just like, if you're trying to jam another one on there, it doesn't work because you also have hamburgers and you get snags you want to do, so, you know. This is a bonus of having you on, Hamish. Other than your, your great expertise on these shows, we can also, here and there, debunk some of these cultural stereotypes. So this is great. <laughs> yeah, the cultural stereotypes. I, it's just from TV shows. I think they're doing a lot of damage to us. <laughs> Somehow, TV has damaged the image of Australia. I don't know how. <laughs> Mad Max is fixing that slowly but surely. Yeah, he is, by slowly getting out of the picture and letting a woman take the lead role it'd still be called mad max it's just he'll be off the side (laughs) so anyway back to the episode uh we find out that this dr adler who's offering this cure for the mutants it's actually mystique in disguise she's really doing the bidding of apocalypse and the machine that's used to cure the mutants actually transforms them into slaves for apocalypse and we can see that apocalypse is very interested in rogue's immense power you know she'd be a a great henchman but uh we also see cable as we mentioned before cable he arrives here at muir island Uh, he's also looking for dr adler but not for a cure uh Throughout the series, he's also always trying to kill Apocalypse because he's destroyed the future that he comes from. And, uh, you know, he's like kind of this foretold person that would defeat him. Now, we finish with Apocalypse telling Mystique, I know more of this world than you have even dreamed. That is why I must destroy it. Which, I don't know why that makes sense. He's he's seen too much, is that it? I've seen too much. I've been on the internet for five hours. This is enough. <laughs> Did you know there's a guy making a TV show about a bunch of nerds who live in a house and they're going to be like doing way too many episodes? Nobody understands that. This can't happen. I have to destroy the planet. <laughs> he saw it in the future. Yeah, he saw it in the future and you know didn't, didn't warn us. Didn't warn us that Big Bang Theory would be on forever. Johnny Galecki, the kid from Roseanne, will go on to do evil things. <laughs> and also, like, uh. did you like Ninja Turtles? Because the theme music was written by the same guy who makes that show. Really? Yeah. Chuck oh, L- see, I didn't know. Chuck Lorre did... Was it Chuck Lorre? Chuck Lorre? Whatever it is. Yeah, um, Chuck Lorre. Yeah, he did the music. He did the theme music to Ninja Turtles. Oh, wow. That's yeah. awesome. <laughs> that's, a, that's, a, that's a weird bonus fact which is kind of like <laughs> it's kind of confusing for the fact like oh I really liked Ninja Turtles when I was a kid and he's like man I really do not like Big Bang Theory <laughs> that's awesome hmm. 
Alright, so and with that, we get our opening sequence that features that great instrumental theme song. It starts with the X-Men and the Blackbird Jet, they're flying around the X-Men logo, and this transitions into each of the X-Men getting their own scenes, along with their names and kind of a brief demonstration of their powers. Now if you notice here, the typeface that's used for some of these names actually matches the logo used on the covers of some of the comics. And it, they really paid attention to detail. And this is one of the reasons I really love this show. Now, we see the character Wolverine, and his name, Wolverine, is actually how it looked in the original Frank Miller 1982 miniseries, you know, and also his ongoing series. Uh, the Beast, it, it's kind of like this weird furry-looking typeface. That's actually from his issues of Amazing Adventures in 1972 and 1973. He kind of had a short run there where he actually transformed into, you know, this big hulking guy into a kind of a gray at first furry beast. Ooh. So it's really amazing that they took the time. I mean, they could have just put some Comic Sans junk and kids would have watched it and loved it and not even cared anyway. But uh, just the fact that they took the time and the care to do this meticulously... I, I always appreciate that. Well, I think the opening to this show really did... Um, it, it kept in the comic book realm, you know, mm -hmm. especially for kids when they're watching or if their parents are watching it. Yeah, it kept that kind of theme, but also had that very good 90s solo thrashing sound to it. Mm -hmm. Everyone had to have, like, a guitar, like an electric guitar solo throughout the entire piece. <laughs> it was the best. For some reason, it's just, it just seemed like there was a boom in that field. Where it's just like it's, we need we need a, a session guitarist to come in and just do a you know you know a thirty minute solo. All right, good, let's go. Yeah, I remember this this opening uh, pales in comparison to the much more superior opening, if as we all know of the, was it the Japanese opening? Oh yes, yes. The Japanese opening is the most amazing opening ever because there's was it they just say the, the piece of English in it which I remember it was shock. That was <laughs> yeah. it. It's a shock. <laughs> It's just that. And then it's like a, another huge guitar solo. It was a shock because, you know, at some sometimes when you'd watch it on Fox and they'd show the closing credits, they would show it over these uh, anim this anime sequence. And it was just amazingly animated. You know, here we get this X-Men series, which is actually animated by Acom, a, a studio in Korea. This was uh, a... a a Japanese anime, you know, traditionally anime style action sequence, which was just absolutely mind blowing. And yeah, shock is just the perfect way to characterize it. Mm, because yeah, that opening was like, it was so fluidly an anime compared to this one. I mean, yeah. you know, it, it was only, it was, it, they only topped and tailed it with this. But um, yeah, I mean, like, the, when you finally get around to see that, because I remember this opening and the theme music, you know, it's so iconic. And then you see this one on the internet. If you ever go, if you have a chance, listeners, go and look it up. Go and find mm. this amazing opening because it, it's it's a completely jarring. I'd assume for anyone watching the show, they see that opening and then they watch the show, and the animation's completely different. Yeah, for us here in America, that was like an alternate closing credit sequence, but in Japan, that was the actual sequence that was used to introduce the show, and they also had uh, bumpers too coming in and out of commercial that were. This in this anime style had a little action too. Those are all on YouTube, I guess. Somebody posted it up there, so uh, you're, you're able to find them and take a look at them. They're pretty amazing. Hmm. I mean, it, it's interesting how they um, repackaged some of these series when they had their repeats. Yeah. 
Now, in this opening sequence, we, we get the most iconic image from this cartoon. It's where the opening sequence ends with uh, Professor X leading the X-Men on one side, then we see Magneto leading a team of mutants on the other side, and the two groups charge at each other. And just when they're about to collide, we cut to black and the X-Men logo. And just seeing those two sides running at each other at full speed, it, it's not anything new. You know, if you've ever seen Challenge of the Super Friends, they do it there. It's been done before. You know, maybe it's an homage to, to that previous series. I don't know. But it's just the lasting image when you think of that cartoon. In fact, the ongoing series now, X-Men 92, which is supposed to exist in that universe, the cover of the first issue features the two sides squaring off against each other in that way. Mm. I think the last time we saw two sides squaring off against each other in that exact way was Captain America Civil War. Yes, yes. <laughs> and they did it for real. Not just yeah, not this uh, whole animated shtick. They did it for real. Yeah, it doesn't cut to black. No, it cuts them being the living heck out of each other. But I like how they actually had to explain it in the movie, how they actually get to that point. Because even though the imagery looks great uh, for the two sides lining up, you have to actually work out logistically, why are they lining up and why are they in this situation? Yes, that's something that the cartoon does not do. Yeah, they don't. The, in the, in the, that opening, they added an extra character, didn't they? Yes, you know, here's the thing. If you watch the team of the X-Men you'll see all the X-Men, okay? So if you see Magneto's team here, it's very strange. It consists of a lot of villains that you've already seen in the series up to that point. Juggernaut, Pyro, Mystique, Sabretooth, along with Avalanche, who isn't wearing a helmet for some reason. But now we also see two very curious characters here. The deceased former X-Men Thunderbird, possibly his brother Warpath, because he wore the same costume at the time, but this is most likely Thunderbird, and this little Green guy, he, he's actually, he's wearing a green costume. He has a pink head. Now this is, it's just weird because we've, I don't think we see him at all throughout the series. Maybe one cameo later on, but this is most likely someone named Alpha. Not only Alpha, he's called Alpha, the ultimate mutant. He's a super powerful mutant. He first appeared in Defenders number 15, September, 1974. And his story is that he was bioengineered by Magneto to assist him and the Brotherhood of Evil Mutants, in fighting the Defenders. And I guess Magneto found some old manuscript, some hidden cave or something. And he's supposed to be giant-sized, but he can change his form at will. And his story pretty much ended when he decided he was too evolved to be hanging around on Earth, turned himself into a beam of light, and shot himself into space to travel the universe. Space again? <laughs> yes. It's, it's always space. It's convenient. Everyone's going to space. It's like, I don't want to be here anymore. Space. That's the, lo the logical area to go to. Yeah, it's poochy. Nobody goes the other way around where it's like, well, I'm not going to space. I'm going deeper to the earth. I'm going <laughs> to live under the ground with the Morlocks. That's one way to go, but not, not here. It, it, so basically, he has no business being in this opening sequence. And the only thing that I can personally think of is that maybe they sent character designs to the, the animation studio in Korea and just said, you know, here, we're, we're going to need a team of villains and a team of X-Men. And maybe just to even it out, they took something from the villains page or just some extra character models and figured it was such a quick sequence. I don't know. It's just so strange. It's one of the most perplexing things about this entire series. That, you know, this character didn't get to turn up. Yeah. It's like, oh, he would have been the best character. He made all the sense. Well, not only, not just that, but, well, you could have 
Apocalypse in there or one of the horsemen in there. You know, we, we could have other villains that appear later on. The Sebastian Shaw, but whatever. <laughs> he said, like, kind of, like, left out, like, oh, well, yeah, we could have had him, but, you yeah, know, whatever, man. Yeah, it's fine. It's fine. <laughs> I mean, just because he's all-powerful and he could probably take down an Apocalypse, whatever, man. Yeah. yeah. So It's not like I care. <laughs> All right, so now as the episode begins, we open on a dark and stormy night on Muir Island in Scotland. We cut to a laboratory facility as Dr. Adler is talking to Warren Worthington III, also known as the Angel, and telling him about his cure being a new way of life that is a beginning for mutant kind. Now, if you notice here, the Angel is in his red and white costume that he wore like around the 80s. Mm -hmm. It's a good fashion choice. His logo was like a tilted halo. You know, really drive the point home. It's a jaunty halo. <laughs> you now, know, he, he wants to be official, but not too official. Exactly. Now, Warren is grateful. He's saying that he always wanted to be an ordinary human being, and he views himself as a freak. But the thing is, Warren, he looks like an ordinary human being, you know, he, except for his giant white feathered wings. In the comics, he'd have to strap them down with some sort of harness. It's not easy for this guy to blend in. But other than the wings, he looks just like a normal guy. Kind of. He has wings. Yeah, but I mean, other than that, if he didn't have the wings, uh, he... But he'd, be, he'd be wearing an outfit. That's true. The, yeah, the outfit is really what makes him look like a freak. It, it's it, it well the, that color pattern doesn't seem to work. It's it's red and white. Yeah. It's like a candy cane. So yeah. that's the thing with the wings. He matches the outfit. It's like oh, I can see that you're an outcast and you're part of a superhero team. But if he was just let's say you get rid of the wings and have him just as himself wearing the outfit, you're like, what what's going on here? <laughs> Are you part of Cirque du Soleil? Yeah, really. Do a backflip. <laughs> Now, Dr. Adler tells him that since it was his funding that made this cure possible, it's only fitting that he be the first to get the first treatment. So he's shackled onto the table, and he's ready to face this painful process, and after he's, you know, completely secured, Dr. Adler morphs back into Mystique and starts to laugh. Now, Warren is all shocked, and he gasps, knowing that something is terribly wrong, but it's too late, and he gets zapped with this glowing blue beam that emanates from this large piece of machinery above him. Just then, Apocalypse ominously appears. He even frightens Mystique, and she shows him how she is beginning the process. Now, clearly, they're not partners in this scheme. Um, Mystique is clearly working for Apocalypse, and she is so scared to displease him. What was Apocalypse? I don't know if he just kind of materialized or he just kind of stepped out from the shadows. There's a lot of stepping out from the shadows in this episode. I know, that's, that's, that's the magic of uh, children's TV. But the thing <laughs> is, I always assume, because like, they're just in the guy's lab, right? And Apocalypse... So like, Angel comes in to talk to the fake scientist. And so Apocalypse is either sitting in a room, like another office, a waiting room or something like that, just waiting for the right time to come out. <laughs> just going like, would, would now be... He's not shackled yet, I'll just wait. Yeah, I'll have, I'll, have a, I'll have a cup of coffee and sit and wait. Is he? Is he? No, no. I'll wait. I'll just wait, <laughs> wait in the doctor's office. Read some of these periodicals. Yeah. And oh wait, he's 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 oh, he's, he's, re oh, he's ready. Ah, spilled the coffee. Ah, he just runs out. Acts all cool. Like that's why he's in the shadows. Yes. Before before he got up, he spilled coffee on himself, and he comes out and is like, "Yay, what's up?" <laughs> Plays it off very cool. 
Yeah, it's like, hey, ugh, I'm angry again. <laughs> now, Apocalypse is pleased. He watches Warren writhing in pain, and he tells Mystique that her loyalty will be rewarded. Oh, and also the rest shall be his slaves. Well, I think he's got to think that through a little bit. He's going to need some more people to work with, but whatever. He then orders Mystique to increase the power on the machine because he wants to hear the cries of the future being born. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> I See, that's saying like, was the power not up high enough? I always assume this, where it's like, when they say increase the power, because it doesn't, like, is it a slow process or is it a, like you don't use it full power? Because if I go to a microwave, I know there's a power setting on the microwave, Yeah. but, but if I cook a burrito, I don't, you know, go halfway and go, yeah, that's enough. You know, I, right. if, I, if I put it in halfway, it's, you know, it's not going to be cooked. I have to put it <laughs> under full power, and then I know it's working. So, I'm not, I'm, not, I'm not sure why it's always, like, half power. Like, always in these cartoons, it's always half power, then full power. Just a gentle, like, maybe just have a one switch or a button. Yeah, no dimmer. You just, uh, it's a, it should be a toggle switch, for sure. Yeah, just, like, on, and that, it works. Because, <laughs> you know, trying to set up the, the certain levels of power... It, you know, it seems weird. Plus, also, if there's a guy getting satisfaction from people screaming, I just... You know, if you're a doctor or if you're working in the medical area, if the pain would be... You know, you, you don't want to give someone ultimate pain here. So you want to be kind of in a comfort zone here. But when that guy... I don't think Apocalypse is even a doctor, so... You know, no. I know he's a celestial accoutrement jammed inside him. But the thing is, you know, it just... You, you don't need someone to scream. Once it, what is, you can just like st- sit there and wait till the process is over and then he'll be done. Don't speed it up. It's ridiculous. Very, very dramatic, this guy. He is, and also not very safe. <laughs> so from here, we briefly cut to Warren's point of view. We see the blue beam intensify, and we cut to a shot of the exterior of the lab as Warren screams. And from here, we fade to black and cut to commercial. So at this point, the show goes into a commercial break, so why don't we take this opportunity to take a commercial break ourselves, we'll pay some bills, and we'll be right back. Do you suffer from restless index finger? Do you constantly find yourself rapidly tapping pencils on the edges of coffee mugs, or annoyingly ringing doorbells with unintended urgency? Then you may be eligible for a new clinical trial. To find out if you qualify, just call 555 and we're back. So when we return, we open on a Muir Island pub as a man named Abraham Kuros is playing darts as he waits for Dr. Adler. And he's getting angry, saying he's been waiting months for his cure. And there's an older lady standing nearby... And she gets upset at Kiros, telling him that they've all been waiting for a cure, and she attempts to throw a bar stool at him. Now, this lady, this is the Morlock known as Plague. And more on Plague and Kiros later. So, she misses with the bar stool. It goes flying towards a table, and cutting across, we see Rogue, Jean Grey, Cyclops, and Professor X sitting at that table. And Jean conveniently catches the stool with her telekinesis and drops it safely to the floor. So the X-Men have arrived at Muir Island to do a little more investigating. All in costume. Completely in costume. <laughs> That's a, are they undercover? Because they go to this bar or pub, and again, they're all wearing their brightly colored 90s outfits. There's nothing wrong with those outfits. It's just that, you know, if you want to be kind of keep it on the, you know, DL, you want to 
make sure you're wearing like normal people clothing, not right. superhero people clothing. <laughs> I think I think the only person that has civilian clothes is Wolverine, and I even have somewhere. Uh, somewhere in my closet or something in a box that Wolverine with the civilian jacket that was like the action figure that they made of it. Pretty funny. Because <laughs> that was the best outfit. <laughs> but here's the other thing. Where were uh, Professor Xavier? He's got like normal clothing. That's true. He he always wears a, a suit and a tie. Yeah, he wears a suit and a tie. Except he's seeing that giant floating barge. Yeah, yeah. Which is going to be hard to get in the door. I don't know how he did. Yeah, that's the thing. Like, it's bigger than normal wheelchairs, I gotta say. And so... I don't know who or how he gets into certain places which aren't accommodating for him. Uh, so, you know, maybe he has to, they have to pull him out of the chair and they slide it sideways, slide it through a doorway, then they put him back in the chair and then he <laughs> floats around smashing the furniture. Yeah, good thing they cut this much later that we didn't have to see all that work being done. No, it's, it's on the um, extended episodes. This is kind of interesting how they had to do this in the cartoon because by the time that this came out in the 90s, the X-Men in the comics had already encountered the Shi'ar, uh, Professor X has met Lalandra, the Shi'ar have uh, given them technology and shared with them scientific knowledge. So Professor X went from having a standard-looking regular wheelchair to this futuristic, like you said, barge-like thing, this giant Ooh. golden, you know, gaudy wheelchair, this futuristic hover chair. But in the cartoon, they haven't met the Shi'ar yet, yet Professor X has all of this futuristic technology, which is kind of funny. He built it himself. Yeah, as far as, yeah, Beast built yeah. it. Like everything else in this cartoon, Beast made yeah. it. So, Rogue here, she's mad at the irresponsibility of these people, but Professor X tells her that they just don't know how to live at ease with their mutant powers yet. And cutting around the pub, we see that there are many others that are in that same situation. They're feeling alone and dissatisfied with themselves, including one very sad lady that kills a flower on her table just by touching it. Aww. It's sad. Now, I think this lady might be someone named Autumn Rolfson, but we'll get into that a little later, too. Now, Jean thanks the professor for giving them a life different than that by providing them a, a place where they belong and Rogue adds that it just takes the hard-headed ones, like herself, a little longer to realize that. Uh, everybody this... loves Professor. <laughs> but this, her saying that, that's a reference to the episode previous to this one that was called The Cure. And it was really about Rogue seeking the cure for her mutant power and coming to terms with the idea that she'll never touch another person. So now Rogue has decided to remain with the X-Men, and even though she's really not happy with her lot in life, she is focused on Professor Xavier's vision, and she's committed to her life as one of the X-Men. That's good. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. She's given that up <laughs> for someone else's dream. It's fine. She'll kiss Gambit later on in the series, don't worry. Eh. Eh. <laughs> <laughs> so, it doesn't mean much with Gambit because when yeah mind when you'll see Gambit later on in the episode, we'll get into it. Uh, so just then, Warren bursts through the door of the pub and exclaims, "I'm cured! I'm cured! My wings are gone! Doctor Adler's treatment works!" And the other mutants in the pub they run over in amazement, and they're all taking a closer look at him. And Warren tells the gathering crowd that they no longer have to be hated mutants. You know he's living proof of this now. So Cyclops, he parts the crowd, he makes his way up to Warren, telling him that, you know, hey, they're mutants and there's nothing wrong with them, nothing that needs to be cured. And Warren replies, look me in the eye and tell me that. Oh. To which Cyclops, Cyclops begins to remove his visor, saying, it'll be my pleasure. 
What a, what a jerk move. It's just, a, it's just a line of, look at me in the eye and say that. You say it to Cyclops. Right. He didn't say eyes, by the way. He said eye. He knew exactly what he was saying. What a jerk. That's true. That's a good point. Jerk. <laughs> and Cyclops is ready to murder him, it seems. Well, yeah, that's Cyclops' way. I can understand. It's funny because, you know, Angel, Warren Worthington, he is one of the original five X-Men from September 1963, X-Men number one. Uh, Cyclops and the Angel really should know each other quite well, and it's not clear at this point of the series whether they do have that past history. You know, he's not one of the X-Men that we see in the show as a regular character. There is, later on, there's a scene where I think Jubilee is looking at old records, and there's a scene where you see the Angel and Cyclops and Jean Grey, you know, in their original almost Jack Kirby costumes. Mm-hmm. So later on, they're kind of like, oh yeah, this was the original five. So we're really not sure if they know each other yet or at all, but uh, it seems that they might, because he, like you said, he did say, look me in the eye. <laughs> But uh, before Cyclops murders Warren, uh, the professor tells him to stop. It's really not their place to tell other mutants what to do. And Rogue says that each of them will have to look into their hearts and decide what to do. Mm. (laughs) So Warren tells the crowd, you know, they'll no longer be laughed at. They'll no longer be feared. And they'll be like everybody else. And the crowd is quickly won over by this and they begin cheering. (laughs) So... When they realize, yeah, they're not going to sway anybody, yeah. Professor X is like, yeah, we should probably head home. <laughs> and then, no, what, what the- <laughs> Sorry, then it's the process of trying to get his barge-like chair out the doorway again. <laughs> Just to go, all right, we better leave. All right, someone pull me out and tip the scene to the side. <laughs> Gene, lift with your legs. Use your mind power, something. Just push, push. It's going to take 30 minutes to get out of here. <laughs> it's a very awkward exit. Yeah, that's why he hasn't got Kitty Pride with him. He could have just touched the thing and they could have phased through the doorway. That's true. No Kitty Pride in the series. Yeah, that's a shame. <laughs> Would have been helpful. <laughs> that's that's what he was complaining about. It's like, where was Kitty Pride? She was here like the in the pilot episode of the other series, yeah. but then all of a sudden, oh, she's gone. Oh well. well. We had a lot of problems with Kitty Pride in that episode. Again, go go back to that episode <laughs> of the podcast. We we had some issues with her. <laughs> Now, one thing to notice as this scene ends is that uh, Warren asks the crowd, who wants to be next? And we see Kiros, Plague, and that lady that killed the Rose. They all step forward begging for a cure. Those three. (laughs) Yeah. No, it's just the old lady's line of, me! Oh, yeah. (laughs) She she holds it way too long. (laughs) He's like, who wants to be cured? And then she comes up, me! It's like, okay, calm down. So Rogue witnesses this and she sadly walks away. You can tell she's still not happy with herself and she wants this cure that these ones are seemingly about to receive. And of course I say seemingly because you know this is too good to be true. And this is immediately confirmed as we cut back from this scene at the pub to see that Apocalypse is watching it on a monitor. Because evidently Apocalypse is watching pubs around Scotland. Just in case? Yeah, he has that secret camera that Dr. Claw has. You know, where for some reason it has the perfect angle. And yet, yes. you know, this is before you... Like, I know he has a flying thing or he has, like, the pub watch channel. Something like that. But he has that camera yep. which is in the exact same spot that you... You're the position that you need to get important information. <laughs> yeah. You know. 
Or he's just watching an episode of X-Men, like we are. He's sitting there going, I wonder what's happening on X-Men. Click. This is Very meta. <laughs> nothing at all. <laughs> yes. Now, Apocalypse turns from the monitor and remarks, Oh, Mystique impersonates you very well, Mr. Worthington. And we cut to Warren walking out of the darkness into the light as he replies, Worthington is no more. Now there is only Archangel. And we now see that Warren has been transformed into the character known as Archangel. His skin is now light blue, and he wears a dark blue suit with bright pink accents, and most notably, his white angelic wings have been completely replaced with sharp metallic ones. And so Warren flexes his bionic wings, and that fires metal shards at the monitor, destroying it. And then Apocalypse is like, ah, I was watching that. Yeah. What does she... It's not like he has spare TVs. Well, actually, if they're still in the lab, then it's the doctor's TV, isn't it? It's not their... Maybe it's not their stuff. It's not their facility, but they still have to take care of it, you know? He, he was using it. It was evidently a, a valuable tool. You know, he... It's of all things to fire at. Yeah. He's sitting there going, great, now I can't watch Antiques Roadshow. <laughs> you, know, you know how much... You know how old I am? I need to find myself a nice armoire and all of a sudden... I can't watch it now, so... You know, there's only, there's only so many exciting things I like in this world. Antiques Roadshow was one of them. So, I guess we have to keep going on with this evil plan now, forcibly, because I can't watch TV. Thanks, Warren, or whatever you are now, Archangel. Well, speaking of valuables, there this transformation of Angel to Archangel at the hands of Apocalypse actually did take place in the comics. X-Factor number 24, January 1988. And if you have a copy of this, it, it has increased in value since the X-Men Apocalypse movie was announced. So, you know, don't bring it on Antiques Roadshow. It's too recent, but, you know, there's there's a collectible rising in value. Oh. What about the wedding issue of uh, Scott and Jean? Nah, not really. I got that out of a dollar bin. Dang it. So did I. <laughs> that's, that's, that was a bizarre issue. Just because, oh, yes. I mean, that and the X-Men swimsuit. No, wait. The Marvel swimsuit issue. Yeah, that's another Jim Lee one. That yeah, it's Marvel did some strange things. They took some chances. They rolled the dice. I think. I think it's a sure. Yeah, that's what you want to call it. I mean, you know, at least um, in in light of recent events of Captain America, I think you know it's it's it was a little bit different back then. <laughs> Captain America all of a sudden becoming a Hydra agent now. Well, that's issue number one. We'll we'll see what happens from there. You know, they're gonna do some crazy outlandish thing. Oh, not as outlandish as well DC at the moment. I, That's true. I have no idea what they're doing and how much stuff they want to destroy and how angry they want to make other, let's say, writers. <laughs> Alan Moore is not happy with them. Alan Moore is not happy with anything. I know, but if you're, if you're on Alan Moore's side about this, it's like, all right, we're going to take that thing, Watchmen. You know how you made that entire book about characters that you couldn't use about characters from the you know, main universe? Well, we're going to mm-hmm. combine that now. It's like, ah, <laughs> I hate you. I'm just laughing at the fact like there's always these creators out there. Like Frank Miller is fine with people just you know doing his work. Like oh yeah, let's do another Batman. And then Alan Moore comes along. And it's like no, you're ruining everything. <laughs> this was kind of an interesting change too. You know, Angel had been around since the '60s, and now in 1988, he was going to be changed into basically a cyborg. You know, he had the he had these robotic wings, and he had um, a lot of emotional scarring. And this, you know, this was a, a very big change and it had affected him for a very, very long time. 
So, going back to the episode, after a brief cut to the storm outside, we cut back inside to see Apocalypse and Archangel. They're standing side by side as Apocalypse pledges that they will forge a new world in fire and blood. Okay. Well, you know, fire and blood. That's the only way you can forge things, apparently. It's not that efficient. No, it's not. (laughs) It's like, first use the fire, then use the blood. (laughs) Now, as Apocalypse continues with this rhetoric, we get a montage of the three that begged for a cure at the pub, and they are also being hit with this blue beam and transformed, just as Warren had. Apocalypse goes on to say that those who oppose him shall perish through his agents of destruction, and as the camera pans to the right, we see these agents of destruction, and they're mounting robotic horses that Apocalypse has created as their vehicles. Now, these are Apocalypse's horsemen. They're known as Famine, Pestilence and War. They are the transformed versions of these three mutants that were seeking a cure, along with Archangel, who Apocalypse describes as his greatest creation, Death. Death, (laughs) the winged Avenger. (laughs) Again, it sounds like he's part of some sort of metal band. This is Apocalypse, and this is Death, the winged Avenger. (laughs) Yes. And he's like, it's my greatest creation, guys. Greatest creation. He does slap bass. (laughs) I'm telling you, it's our best album yet. Best album yet. What's it called? Apocalypse. You can't name it after yourself. Nah, it's gonna happen. It's gonna happen, guys. Alright, now let me give you a little background on these horsemen. These versions of war, pestilence, famine, and death, these are the original lineup of the horsemen from early in the run of X-Factor comics in the 80s. Now, later it was written that, okay, throughout the centuries, Apocalypse always selects four to serve as his horsemen. And as the comics went on, there have been many that have served in this capacity. Now, at the post credit sequence of the movie X-Men Days of Future Past, if you look off to the side, you can see four individuals. They're standing right there, kind of in the left of the frame, as the child Ensabanur is creating the pyramids. And in the movie X-Men Apocalypse, we see that Magneto, Storm, Psylocke, and Archangel fill those roles. But, you know, in the comics, it's been everybody. Like, even Wolverine was a... Uh, a horseman of the apocalypse. It, it just seems to be these rotating positions, but this particular group of four of, are what fans read first in the comics. It's uh, interesting to note for the fact that his speech here, when he uh, puts assembles the uh, horseman, uh, was it rise from the ashes will create a better one? Was it new world from yeah. a better one? Yeah, that entire line is actually f- used in the new movie in X Men Apocalypse. Yeah, interesting. Yeah, so they actually, uh, and the thing is, like I, I. When I was watching rewatching this episode, yeah, I had to make sure, and I went and watched the trailer. Yeah, they use the exact same lines. Hmm. So they decided to go, oh, we'll use this line from this cartoon because, you know, it's his first appearance, and so the first appearance of his character will have to use the same scripting, if that makes sense. I'm just, I'm just <laughs> being very impressed by the way they actually decide to use lines from a cartoon. No, that's a good find. <laughs> very interesting. Yeah. Again, you can just watch the trailer. If you haven't seen the movie... You don't have to. You can watch, listen to the trailer and you'll hear the same line. Now, in the comics, this character of war, this was Abraham Kuros. Uh, this is the guy that we see in the cartoon. He's kind of got like a bowl cut. He was, he was a paralyzed Vietnam War veteran to whom Apocalypse offered a cure. And his paralysis was cured. He could once again use his mutant power. And we find that his power is to create explosive bursts by clapping his hands. <laughs> So you don't never want to entertain the guy. If he claps his hands, everybody gets killed. It's a problem. It's not. It's an issue. 
It is an issue. Yeah. I mean, if he went to his daughter's recital and then she does a really good job, everyone claps and she looks at the crowd and sees he's not clapping, she'll get upset. But he says, I can't clap. I'll kill everybody here. But then again, she she, <laughs> well, she runs away crying. He's like, ah. Or, or maybe she sees that he's not clapping and to her, she knows like she did a job well done. <laughs> but to everyone else, he's like, you can't clap for your own daughter. You're ridiculous. Terrible father. <laughs> You're a terrible father. <laughs> Either way, he's going to lose. Now, the next horseman, this is Plague or Pestilence, also known as. Uh, she was a Morlock who was, in the comics, a mutant that lived in the sewers. Uh, she also appeared earlier in the X-Men series. Uh, so, you know, we've seen her before. And when the Morlocks were massacred in the comics, Apocalypse actually saved her life, saying that he had plans for her. And her mutant powers allow her to be immune from any illness, as well as transmit and alter various diseases. So, yeah, very, uh, very scary character. What do you mean, alter any disease? It's like... She can mutate diseases, and, and so she can give you a more potent version of the flu. Ah. Uh, <laughs> I, th- I thought she could mutate it to make it something different. It's like, ah, uh, now you have no flu. Couldn't she do that? If she, oh, with the right training, she could just reverse it? Sure, if she was a hero, I'm sure she could vaccinate everybody or, you know, do something to immunize everybody. That's if she was a hero. That's it. That's right. That's that's the one thing stopping. It's like, ah, oh, well, my license says I'm a villain, so i got to do the reverse of everything. <laughs> I could be a villain and, you know, help people, but then, you know, I'd be an anti-hero, so, you know, I can't do that either. Right. Now, Famine is our next one. Now, Famine was, a, in the comics, a spoiled girl named Autumn Rolfson who suffered from anorexia. And she has the ability to turn organic matter into dust, as well as increase the hunger in people. Now, in the comics, her parents were embarrassed by her, you know, and they they put her in hospital after hospital to deal with her anorexia. And Apocalypse approached her with a way of getting revenge on them, and this is how Famine was born. Now, in the cartoon here, Autumn seems to be played by an older lady, and that might be possibly to avoid any mention of anorexia, and, you know, we'll also see that Kuros has full use of his limbs before his transformation, so maybe they just don't want to complicate these characters for kids, you know, and explain more than they need to, you know what I mean? Mm. That That's my guess, anyway. That's why we have different forms of them, but that's basically the lineup from the X-Factor comics. Now, back to the episode... Uh, Apocalypse now sends his horsemen out into the night just to create chaos. And of course, being chaotic, they don't use a door. They just bust through the roof because that's what being chaotic is all about. Yeah, being chaotic and destroying someone's lab. It's great. In the rain. So Apocalypse is kind of like, <laughs> has to grab the mop. It's like, uh, guys, I gotta clean this up. <laughs> there is a door, you know. <laughs> Ooh. So he slips over. He's like, glad no one saw that. So back at the X-Mansion, we see Rogue, Gambit, and Jean Grey are enjoying some billiards in the rec room. And Gambit is playing Rogue and suggests that the winner get a kiss from the loser. And this request evidently throws Rogue off of her game, making her miss, and she yells at Gambit, asking if he wants to end up in a coma. And Gambit says he has no problem with that at all, and in fact, he has plenty of energy, and she can drain him anytime. Uh, that's right. Yeah. That's right. This version of Gambit was the Pepe Le Pew of the X Men. <laughs> Very much Pepe Le Pew. Yeah. Why? Like, and these accents. I mean, I'm. I know the accents in this show. Like, they tried to make it, you know, I guess regionally based, especially like Wolverine's Canadian um, snarling. 
But like all the characters are very <laughs> in, like I won't say international, like very much from their own country in a certain yeah. way. You know, Storm, Gambit, Rogue. Uh, but yeah, it's just Gambit's thing of like, oh, I'm Gambit, I'm going to get you, lady. You know, it's kind of, right, right. I mean, I mean, that's my best impression. But just off the <laughs> bat, that's literally what he sounds like. Oh, it's true. I want to be be part of you. You want to smooch? You know, <laughs> that, he says it all the time. So some some sort of vaguely veiled sexual innuendo. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And we we get that throughout the series. Just from his character, that's it. Now, to demonstrate, this is kind of a weird moment. To demonstrate his energy, Gambit then uses his power to charge his pool cue. But to teach him a lesson, Jean Grey, who I guess is there to just watch billiards or bet on it, she's not really playing, but she's standing nearby, she telekinetically makes the cue ball hop up into Rogue's hand, making Gambit strike the felt. Yep, that's how the game works. I guess. So Storm, near, sitting nearby, chimes in with a really sick burn, saying, Gambit, the term Rec Room does not mean that you must wreck it. And then Wolverine walks in and he's like, Oh, you got served! <laughs> I mean, that doesn't happen, but, you know, it'd be interesting just to add, you know, salt to the wound. It would be fun, but even Gambit was like, What, even Storm's making jokes now? Because <laughs> that's what It the, was pretty funny. That's what the X-Men about. A quality and throwing out some good gags. There are some great jokes here. <laughs> that's, that's it. They have a tight five every weekend. They go. That's up, right. They go to the comedy clubs and like, all right, guys, here's my tight five. All right, ho ho. What's with Cyclops and that one eye thing? He's ridiculous. Don't you hate when your mutant power kicks in? <laughs> Don't you hate when you you're meeting the parents and then all of a sudden you fire off your optic laser blast? <laughs> all right, guys, I gotta leave. <laughs> That's my time. What's the deal? Airplane peanuts. <laughs> when you fly Black- and they're in your pocket and then you drop them. Don't you hate Blackbird jet food? <laughs> this one guy in the back is like, Woo! Yeah! <laughs> it's like Nightcrawler, you don't count. <laughs> so, anyway, at, at this point, Storm conveniently puts on the TV where we see on the news that the world leaders have gathered in Paris for conventional weapons disarmament talks at the World Peace Conference. Now, the chairman steps to the podium in front of an old building for, I guess, an outdoor press conference. And here he mentions that negotiations must be done carefully. You know, everyone desires peace, but can they really disarm when mutants walk among them? Yes. I guess, huh? So the camera pans up the front of this old building to three stone gargoyles. And as the crowd below is cheering the chairman's words about being careful that there's mutants around, the middle gargoyle morphs into Apocalypse, who tells them that they bleat for the future like a herd of sheep. Hmm. And uh, to match these this elegant turn of phrase, he then just starts throwing stone gargoyles <laughs> down at the crowd. <laughs> You're like, wow, what a poetic man. Oh, he's throwing rocks at us. <laughs> it's like, I couldn't think of anything else. Just this. Just this. <laughs> no, some guards now fire up at Apocalypse with lasers, of course, because, you know, no real guns in this show. And he turns his hand into a shield and sends his horsemen down to fight them. Evidently, they were kind of like on the other side of the roof, just kind of like waiting, like, you know, when boss tells us to go, we're going to go. It's like, which one's the boss? He's the gargoyle. There's five of them here, guys. Oh, no. <laughs> the one that's not smashed. <laughs> the one that's not smashed. 
But no, like, yeah, he's, he's manages Hardy over the other side. It's funny that nobody inside the building goes, hey, there's like four flying horse robot things out here. Is this anybody's? Anybody ask for this? No? Is this a present? <laughs> just like sitting there. Is this part of the presentation? <laughs> it seems kind of on the nose, doesn't it? Uh. But yeah, I think the best part of the scene is when he comes down and he introduces himself. But he says his name in um, <laughs> such such a childlike manner. Like, I am Apocalypse. <laughs> yes. Like he's down at the DMV getting a license. And he like flexes in front of him too. Like really like, <laughs> you know, towers over the guy and flexes his muscles. He really wants to show off those guns. He didn't, he didn't spend like forever just, you know, sitting around. He wants to show off what he's got. It's like, oh, I guess here, I am Apocalypse. You ready for the gun show? <laughs> and, and as this is all happening, the X-Men are, that we cut back to see that they're all watching it take place on TV live. And Rogue, here's another joke. Rogue mentions that it looks more like a world war conference. Then Wolverine comes in again and goes, oh. Because <laughs> there's not much Wolverine in this episode, I gotta say. No, not too much. No, it's not like in later installments in other cartoons where Wolverine has to be contractually obliged to be there. Or, you know, just turn up, do his bits. So just then, now, we get the French army, or at least a French tank and a French helicopter. And they storm across the bridge with helicopters and tanks. Now, all War does is he claps his hands and it blasts a hole in the bridge, causing the tank to fall into the Champs-Élysées. And then we also get a scene where Archangel flies in and kind of shears the blades off of the helicopter's tail, causing it to spiral and crash into the Eiffel Tower. Which, strange enough, no one cares about. Evidently not. I mean, I I think, I, I think there's a couple of frames that you see before they cut that the, it actually breaks in half when the, when the helicopter hits it. Yeah, it falls apart and just, just gets destroyed. I think the last time I saw the Eiffel Tower game destroyed was in that, was it, G.I. Joe movie. And it, yeah. and it came down, like, dramatically crashing, and it, everyone was shocked. But in this version, it's just, like, onto something else. That's it. Yeah, it, Paris clears out quick in this scene, and uh, except for the reporter and the cameraman. So the reporter asks on camera, you know, who can save them? Pestilence flies in, touches him in, in the face, <laughs> and him, he and the cameraman drop to the ground with some sort of green sludge growing on them. It's the power of the Chia Pet. Yes, <laughs> they, it's they've got a chia pet thing happening on their face I, I know it's supposed to be some sort of plague but at the same time it looks like a chia pet or he's got gack on his face yes yeah, so it couldn't be red you know we couldn't have anything gory in the kids cartoons so green is you know acceptable yeah it's, it's gack <laughs> so apocalypse then stomps on the news camera declaring that all who oppose him shall be crushed and that ends our broadcast day yeah that's what he says <laughs> That ends our broadcast day. Smash. That looks pretty good. I hope I don't look fat in camera. <laughs> it was a low angle, so you probably did look pretty fat. Probably. <laughs> so back at the X-Mansion, Professor X is viewing this news footage and remarks that this is what he had feared the most. This is a powerful mutant just driven completely mad by his powers. And here he explains to the X-Men and the children watching at home that unlike Magneto and the makers of the Sentinels, Apocalypse cannot be reasoned with. And he must be stopped there, or there will be no future for anyone. And from that dramatic statement, we fade to black and cut to commercial. Dramatic. Very dramatic. So when we return, the Professor, Jubilee, and Rogue watch the rest of the X-Men leave the X-Mansion in the Blackbird jet through a cloaked door in the side of a cliff. That's more of that Shi'ar technology that they really haven't gotten yet. 
Mm. Now, Rogue is upset. She asks, you know, why wasn't she allowed to help? But Xavier gives her a different mission. He recognized Apocalypse's horsemen as the mutants that were seeking a cure from Dr. Adler from the pub. So he sends her to return to Muir Island to find out more about the mutant cure. He has a photo, though, which is great. Yeah, very conveniently has pictures, some photographs of people's, you know, like uh, Warren that she needs to see. Yeah, Warren who's flying in front of the Eiffel Tower, which is no more. <laughs> right. So it's like he took a screenshot at that moment, like, I better get a screenshot of this. Print it out. Because he printed it out. <laughs> and then hands it to her. He's like, I printed this out just before he, that thing got smashed. Also, <laughs> here's the idea. Because the thing is, he's sending her off to Murray Island in Scotland. So he's like, we're in Westchester. They just took the Blackbird. You can fly, right? <laughs> all right. Have fun. And that's and that's all it is. She, she's like, okay. And she just flies up and across the Atlantic Ocean. You think she'd be like, all right, well, let me stock up on food, water. You know, let me, you know, use the facilities or whatever you got to do before you go off on to fly solo. Mm. But uh, very dangerous. But she just, okay, see ya. Yeah. Gone. But also, I think Jubilee's standing there. Like, yes. just, just standing about. Which is funny, because when she leaves, it's like, I'm sure Jubilee's like, uh, Professor, you know we have an extra plane that she could use, right? He's like, <laughs> he's like, I know, I just, you know, I just, I think she just could do with the flight. You know, just enjoy the opening of the air. This, I don't want to touch my stuff. That's it. It's like, shut up, Jubilee. Go make some fireworks for me now that the sun has set. <laughs> I'm having some people over at <laughs> three o'clock in the afternoon. I need some fireworks. Three o'clock, it's, it's still daylight. I, I, I want some white chrysanthemums. <laughs> just, he's getting him to do the bidding of whatever he wants him to do. <laughs> I need you to go get me a sandwich from the deli. Now! <laughs> so anyway, we next cut to Stonehenge at night, where Apocalypse emerges from an underground base, declaring that a new world shall come to pass. And from here, he sends his horsemen out to do his bidding, and... We see that Famine is flying over a small town, making the residents hungry. Mm. This seems to be an English town since they're leaving from Stonehenge, but this hungry man seems to be pretty French. French accent, beret, very... Mustache. Yeah, very strange, but whatever. And we next see War fly to a military base, and he's turning their missiles against them, destroying a row of fighter jets. And we also see Archangel blow up a dam. So they're really causing trouble all over the place. Yeah, but like how um, after they destroyed a dam, Archangel, he says, purified with fire and water. Fire and yeah. water? <laughs> is it which is which? Is it fire, then water? Because if I set fire to someone and then I immediately throw water on them, I'm just helping them. It's just like, well, they got slightly burnt, but not third degree burnt, depending on how quickly <laughs> I threw the water on them. And I seem to be helping them. So it's kind of confusing. Fire and yeah, water. It should be one then the other. It just seems like we'll purify it with fire and water at the same time because, you know, and he realizes that oh, that's going to cancel each other out. <laughs> what am I saying? It's like the boss has got me saying all this weird stuff now. Yeah. So meanwhile in Scotland, Rogue arrives at Dr. Adler's Muir Island facility. <laughs> and Rogue looks around and notices that giant hole in the roof created by the horseman exiting. And she calls for Dr. Adler and we see Mystique enter the room, quickly morphing into the form of Dr. Adler as he warmly greets her. And he tells Rogue that the destruction in the lab was from some unforeseen results. And Rogue tells him that it's the results that she's interested in. 
and he refuses to talk. And I love this scene here where he turns away into the shadows and we see that half of his face morphs back into Mystique. You know, just to remind the kids, okay, just so you know, kids, this is what's going on. She's pretending. Yeah, it's like she's flaunting her powers a little bit too much. It's like, oh, on, yeah. off, on, off, on, off, off, on, on, <laughs> off. Just just for fun. Like, either she was standing around that, you know, cold, wet, rain-filled office and it's like, man, I am bored. I need something to do. And then Rogue comes in after a, was it, six-hour flight? Eight-hour flight? How long yeah. would that be? It's a long time. She. It's not like she flies as fast as a commercial jet. So, I mean, no. who knows? This could be like a week later. <laughs> so, a week later, she turns up. You know, hungry, tired, and goes. What do I? What was I? What am I here for? Like, the hole. Okay, let's go in here. I just <laughs> maybe she has food. Um, so yeah, it's it's interesting that she's hanging around, and flaunts her powers again, hiding in the shadows. So Rogue straps him into the cure machine and demands some answers. And you know, knowing that she's trapped, finally Mystique morphs back into her original form and agrees to talk. And she tells Rogue that there is no cure, and Apocalypse is just using the treatment to turn mutants into his slaves, and she had to help Apocalypse make these slaves, or he would have killed her. So she tells Rogue that Apocalypse has a secret command center buried under Stonehenge. So from here, Rogue flips Mystique off of the table, and tells her to find a place to hide, since Apocalypse will now be upset that Mystique shared this sensitive information. But as Rogue begins to walk away, we see that Mystique grabs a hidden gun underneath a table, kind of stuck underneath the bottom there, and blasts her up into the cure machinery, and it, destroying the machine and blasting that debris on top of her. Ah, oh, dang it. But of, of course Rogue is fine. She's like nearly indestructible. In fact, she's more upset now that the machine was destroyed because it might be their only way of turning the horseman back. So Mystique enters... A room kind of behind a steel door and, you know, tells her once again, no one can stop Apocalypse. And evidently activates some sort of self-destruct sequence because the lab facility blows up as Rogue flies away. Now, I, I had some problems with this. Mm -hmm. First of all, Apocalypse has a secret base underneath Stonehenge. Everybody has a secret base under some sort of monument. If you haven't learned that by <laughs> now, then you will never learn. You just see Apocalypse kind of just waiting for the tourists to clear so he can start digging. <laughs> it's like, well, you know, of all places, you know, or say, let's just say, okay, he's an ancient being. So let's say he created this secret base and the druids created Stonehenge on top of it. Okay, well, now there's tourists that come there all the time. So now he's going to wait. Well, I want to get into my base, but, you know, there's a guy taking pictures or, you know, something's going on. So I have to mm. wait. So... I had problems with that. that. That aside, if Mystique knew she was going to betray Rogue, mm -hmm. why even tell her the truth? Why doesn't she just say, you know, oh, Apocalypse has a secret base uh, under the South Pole? <laughs> She's like, don't be ridiculous. We know Santa lives there. <laughs> it's like, but, that's, know, it's... <laughs> it was, but I thought that was the North Pole. Wrong. He switched. <laughs> Apocalypse is the anti-Santa. That's what it is. Yeah, if there's one thing we've learned throughout this entire story, is that the anti-Santa is logically the space mutant. That's right. But no, I just Apocalypse is waiting for the tourists to move out of the way. He's like sitting there going, yeah, I'm just a tourist like you guys. Ooh, what's that over there? Click. He's his secret tra <laughs> trap door to go through to his base. Uh, I got to morph into Denise. 
from Burbank and just pretend I haven't seen this before. Oh, wow. Rocks. Pretending to take pictures as he walks into a trapdoor. <laughs> click, click, click. Doop, doop, doop. Just walks off. <laughs> it's a lot of problems with this. Yeah. Then he, so, then he realizes tourists down in his basement. Just taking photos of his alien spaceship. It's like, like, come on, guys. Could you please all leave? The the sign was clearly marked. Please leave through the gift shop. (laughs) So from here, we next cut to Trafalgar Square in London, where the X-Men land the Blackbird jet and confront Pestilence. And realizing that no one can touch her, Jean Grey telepathically relays this info to Storm, who creates a blinding layer of fog. Cyclops then fires his optic blast into the fog mass, knocking Pestilence off of her horse and onto the roof of a double-decker bus, because we gotta get all that London imagery in one scene. All the London cliches. I'm surprised it wasn't a guy standing on the side with a cup of tea and a bowler hat going, My, by George, look at that! <laughs> it was right in front of the Ministry of Silly Walks, too. Yeah, he's, he's sitting there, he's got his cane and everything, he's like, My word, would you look at that, Ponsonby? A woman <laughs> fell from the sky. What magic is this? <laughs> I've gone off my tea. Goodbye, sir. I'll meet you at the crumpet store. It's very close to this happening. But but before that can happen, we get the three remaining horsemen swoop down to face the X-Men. Wolverine now sticks his claws into War's robotic horse and is carried into the air. War then kicks him off, sending him crashing down onto a car. A lot of crashing into cars in this. But you forget, Wolverine gets to have, he gets to yuck it up in this part of the story. When he, when they turn up and they're going to save everybody, it? Cyclops says, try not to hurt any of the survivors. And was it Wolverine saying, I'll try not to bruise, bruise them while I save their lives. <laughs> and then when he, go, when he attacks the horseman, he's got his claws in there, into the horse and he's flying up in the air. For no, for no reason, he says, was it, uh, aren't we getting a little bit of carried away here? And he falls. It's like, yeah, yeah. for some reason, he's decided, like, I have been on this plane for too many hours. I need to crack a couple of jokes. <laughs> you know, he's also the one who says, when someone says, like, who dares defy the horse on the apocalypse? And he goes, the X-Men do. That's it. He's the guy who gets to say those kind of cool lines, and that's it. Yeah, really. Yeah. yeah well, it's hard. You gotta, you gotta kind of give everybody their due, and it's hard to do in a, a villain-heavy episode like this. You know, you know, Wolverine had to come in, lighten the mood after he's trying to stab that guy's horse. So War, War then loops around and he fires into Nelson's column, the, the famous monument, and it sends it tipping over to Wolverine. Now Gambit quickly runs over, and I don't know if you notice when you watch this, but he actually picks up a hat from the ground, charging it with his mutant power, and he just throws it like odd job. At the monument, saving Wolverine from injury. I say injury because, you know, he, that wouldn't have killed him. Yeah, he'd be fine. But, uh, yeah, it, it was just so weird. You know, you know some animator was, like, a big fan of James Bond and was like, let's have Gambit do a little odd job action here. <laughs> that, that's what's always called, a little bit of odd job action. <laughs> Throw a hat, a shoe, a tea kettle, up to you. Who throws a shoe, honestly? Who knows where that reference is from? Not oh, some, behave. Not, not some sort of... <laughs> Outdated, cliched British thing done by. This is ridiculous. <laughs> <laughs> I couldn't think of anything up to that point. I just think like Mike Myers is again talking about cliches uh, of English tropes. Yeah, Mike Myers' in- entire adventures of a cliched Britishman. So, after Wolverine gets saved here, deciding to fight no longer, the horsemen decide to leave. They just get up and okay, we're done. 
and they, the X-Men follow, hoping that they are led to Apocalypse. So we next cut to Stonehenge, where Rogue finally arrives, and she's going off of Mystique's actually correct tip that Apocalypse has a hidden base there. So Apocalypse appears to her and says that she had the chance to be the first of his creatures to serve his will. And Rogue replies, dang, I missed it. And she flies straight at him, but Apocalypse, of course, is so powerful. He just teleports out of the way, and she hurdles herself into a stone pillar. Well, you know, that happens. <laughs> Again, Apocalypse is also hiding in the shadows. Like, yes. quite conveniently, as a large guy hidden between, like, two rocks. Or two of those, two of the columns of yeah. Stonehenge. But it's surprising she didn't see, like, maybe a silhouette, maybe because it's a full moon. Didn't see anything. No, a lot of, a lot of shadow hiding. Hmm. Another example of it. So he, he then tells her that she must be exterminated and blasts her to the ground with these powerful beams from his hands. And just as he's about to deal the final blow, he's interrupted by Archangel, who tells him about the horseman's defeat at the hand of a band of mutants. And Apocalypse, you know, he can't believe this, declaring that his creatures cannot be defeated. Further declaring, I cannot be defeated. <laughs> and just then he's blasted by Cyclops, who says, we beg to differ. And then the camera, of course, pans across as Jean, Cyclops, Storm, Gambit, and Wolverine stand ready to fight. But I like how they kind of snuck in there pretty quickly. Yeah. You think you'd realize a jet kind of landing nearby, but no. Yeah, but then, like, they kind of snuck in. And, like, again, when there was that fight with Apocalypse, he didn't see, like, a, j a jet that was landing, sound effects, the time of his land. <laughs> Nothing. No. It just, it just seems to be like, let's land it quietly, sneak out, and then I'll stand here and I'll shoot him like a sucker. Yeah, really. And of course, it does nothing. Apocalypse here just laughs, and he commands his horsemen to destroy them. Well, they already tried that, but whatever. Okay, we'll try it again. And so from here, we get our climactic battle scene of the episode. War and Cyclops are exchanging blasts. Pestilence is held suspended in the air by Jean. Everybody's really fighting, except for Archangel, who is now kind of like hovering over the fight. And just as he is about to strike, Rogue flies up, of course, without her gloves, and grabs him from behind, kind of like around the neck and the jaw. And they're struggling in midair as Rogue begins to absorb Archangel's power. And this is just so great. Eventually, her skin starts to turn blue, and she makes a hilarious face that if you pause it just right, the frames are hilarious. <laughs> so funny. And then she, she lets go, screaming as she flips backwards. So whatever she brought out of him... Uh, this was enough to bring Warren back to his senses. And with this look of horror on his face, you know, he asks himself, what have I done? And he orders his fellow horsemen to stop fighting the X-Men. It's funny that in this battle, I mean, it could be, it could be too quick. But yeah, well, after they get a, they, they get into this fight, and after Rogue takes uh, Apocalypse's um, mind-warping ability, what do you call it? Because like, he, got, he got completely transformed. Archangel got transformed into, yeah. you know, another guy. Wouldn't it absorb the powers that he gained, or just is it just his memories? It's weird. Well, see, when Rogue touches somebody, she does absorb some of their physical attributes, but a lot of mental baggage, it seems, too. Like, a lot yeah. of emotional problems, uh, memories, thoughts. It, it all depends, and it, the duration of the touch, too, has a big effect. So, something that Apocalypse put into him... Was, went into her as well. <laughs> I don't know what it was. We, you know, it's a, whatever that blue beam is. You know, 
Uh, probably the powers of Pepsi. <laughs> Assumedly, that's why he's, that's, that's why he's all blue. Archangel, uh, you know, they he commands them to stop. They don't stop, so he fires projectiles from his wings at the other three horsemen, completely incapacitating them. And, and that this was another issue I had with this episode. In the comics, whenever Archangel flexes his wings and he fires those shards, they're always like blades. They're always like jagged, kind of sharp but clean razor blade looking fragments. But Mm -hmm. here, they look almost like little arrows, almost with little tails on them. Like it was very strange drawing, but maybe it was just kind of a way of making sure kids don't play with knives or razors. You know, just make those projectiles look like arrows. I mean, kid. I mean, they did make toys for Wolverine's claws, but you know, kids can understand about you know picking up six knives from the drawer and just putting them <laughs> in between their hands. I mean, kids will get hurt, but again, they're not selling the toys. The things are just in the drawer there. Yes, and the the Wolverine action figure made by Toy Biz, they were curved claws. Yeah. So they didn't, you know, actually have a point. Uh, and the Archangel power on the Archangel figure. The tips of his wings were detachable. They were like little missile shapes. Mm. So nothing too sharp came out of those toys. It's funny because I think they had to make Wolverine's claws curved because when you could push them back into his arm, they had to kind of fit into the kind of the shape of his hand. Yeah, to a, to a degree, until like you know pop back out again. Yeah, they were almost retractable, but they didn't stick. No. On some some figures, they did. It depended. There was some sort of locking mechanism. Mm. But anyway, Apocalypse, he's witnessing all of this now. His grand creation now turned against him, and he he sees this event as a sign of weakness. He declares all of them not fit, not worthy, and tells the X-Men that really they are only delaying the inevitable. Wolverine now makes one last charge at Apocalypse, but <laughs> he descends into his hidden base just in time, and the horsemen flee. Yeah, he's perfectly hidden trapdoor. <laughs> and, then, and then Wolverine just starts stabbing the ground because yeah. that's logical. He really goes after it like he's going to get in there, but... He's like, if I keep stabbing the ground, I can get inside the floor and the, the things inside. <laughs> then someone reminds him, like, yeah, this is a heritage listed area. It's like a national landmark thing. He's yeah. like, I don't care. I don't care. So, well, from here, we next cut over to one of the pillars of Stonehenge where Rogue is now curled up. She's holding her head and she's shaking and Warren takes her hand and helps her up. But as he does, the ground now begins to shake, and the X-Men all run to safety. So it doesn't matter if it's a protected site or not. It doesn't matter what Wolverine's about to do, Mm. because now the pillars of Stonehenge begin to fall as Apocalypse's ship breaks out of the ground and flies into space. (laughs) So now after seeing uh, National Lampoon's European vacation, this is the second time I've ever seen Stonehenge get destroyed. All time and forever. <laughs> so what's it? They've, they've destroyed the Eiffel. The Eiffel Tower's been destroyed. Nelson's column's been destroyed, and they've now destroyed Stonehenge. Yeah, yeah. But like they destroyed a lot of lot of landmarks, and it's only yeah. been like maybe a couple of days. Ridiculous. Yeah, we've seen uh, a lot of them fall in this episode. Mm. So now Archangel turns to the X Men and remorsefully tells him that all he really wanted was to be normal, but all he proved is that he was capable of terrible evil. Rogue steps forward, telling him that it wasn't his fault, and that she had the same feelings too. And whatever evil was present in him is now a part of her. Whatever that blueberry syrup that was in his blood. Well, it's it's terrible evil. You know, it's a different class of evil. There's like nice evil, good evil, 
slightly off-center evil, and then there's terrible evil. <laughs> and then evil classic, and then new evil, and then crystal evil. Crystal evil, yes. Crystal Very evil. rare. Crystal evil was rare and the worst. And very, But short-lived. Uh, short-lived, but people <laughs> didn't understand it. So Archangel tells Rogue that he hopes that she's strong enough to control that evil, because he wasn't. And he, from there, flies away into the night as the X-Men look on. And that's the end of the episode. Just kind of like, oh, I'm glad you got that evil out of me because I couldn't handle it. Well, see ya. <laughs> well, he wins. <laughs> it worked out for him. Everything's fine for him. Yeah, he leaves. But then at the end of it, the um, you get the X-Men theme music. And depending on which one you got, because I remember the one I had, which was like a the 3D uh, computer ending. Yeah. You want to click on the different characters and yes. there'll be a 3D model. And this was the cool 3D model back in the day. I think it was the same company that did the 3D model for um, uh, the Iron Man cartoon show when he did these power-up. You know, when, he's, when the animation went from good to really bad 3D animation and then back to good again. <laughs> yeah, that, that weird power-up sequence where he would put on his armor. Yeah, it's just uh, 3D modeling was was uh, becoming uh, more of a thing in these cartoons, and they would do these weird cutaway sequences. Like, mm. Spider-Man had one in the series where he would swing past these crudely animated, you know, rectangular buildings. X-Men had this post credit sequence that only aired sometimes. Uh, I know if you buy the DVD releases, they are they're in there, uh, where a hand, you know, or a cursor is clicking on a file, and mm. each file is one of the X-Men, except for Jubilee. Yeah, Jubilee doesn't get one. They cut it off right there. It's like, and I'm going to close the TV. I mean, the computer, <laughs> whatever it is, the computer TV screen thing. But yeah, yeah, I, re- I remember having that ending. I also yeah. think it was the same time the what was it, they were they were redoing Generation One Transformers and they were topping and tailing it with the 3D animation. So same sort of stuff. Everyone was kind of jamming in that kind of crudely uh, created 3D animation. So it looks like money for nothing. The Dire <laughs> Straits music video. Yes, of course. I have to remind people about that. Because <laughs> oh, I'm, no, no. I'm at that age where it's like, you guys don't remember what bad 3D looks like used for music videos? No? We kind of straddle the generations because we were like really little when that came out. Yeah. But, uh, you know, and then, of course, there was the Beverly Hillbillies, the Weird Al parody, which also had very similar animation. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, that's ever since then. And, of course, Homer Cubed, that great uh, Halloween episode segment, mm. which that was actually done. That 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 was done well by the, the studio that kind of was the precursor to Pixar. Oh, yeah, so, yeah. That was actually done well, and it still holds up. But this stuff, this is junk. The X-Men rotating 360 degrees is really stupid. But anyway, <laughs> it, it that was one of the closing credits that you got. Sometimes you got clips from the show, and then sometimes you got that awesome anime sequence, which I urge you to track down somewhere if you can find it. Yeah, because you're in for a shock! <laughs> I, I'm just going to have that as, as a selling point. That's it. Now, Hamish, looking back on this episode, what what are your thoughts about this series, revisiting it for the podcast? Uh, it, as an adult now, I can appreciate it, but as a kid, I, I thought it was kind of slow. Yeah. Uh, especially because of all the mature content in it. And so you're a kid going, um, I want more fights and explosions. And they did put that in there, you know, with the fight sequence near the end. Mm-hmm. But most of the time, yeah, you're kind of going, eh, I want something to happen, it's love talking. Love not much happening. But oh, yeah, yeah, as an adult, uh, you can see that, you know, it's it's all about character and story building. And even though, you know, some of the line reading is a little bit clunky and, you know, the animation is not 
up to what it is these days. But, you know, it, it was telling a story, and it told its story as convincingly as it could. I mean, it was part of a, a, a bigger arc, too. Uh, but the whole idea of this prejudice that the X-Men face and being mutants facing every day. Yeah, I mean, that was telegraphed really well throughout the entire story. I mean, you know, kids growing up for that kind of storytelling helps them figure out certain things later on in life or as they grow up. So I thought it was really good, especially the way they say that, you know, the choices you make wanting to change, you kind of have to accept who you are and, you know, being who you are isn't so bad. It, it was well done, you know, like you, we've mentioned a couple times now, it's just thematically mature content mm. put in the middle of a kid's show. And it really appealed to all ages. You know, I, it's something like, like you, I can appreciate watching it older now and something I, I loved as a kid. And I just always loved how faithful it was to the comic books. So much so that even Chris Claremont and John Byrne are given story credits in some episodes because it just faithfully follows the comics that closely. And just uh, going back and watching it, there's there's always little nods to the comics, little details, uh, characters hidden in backgrounds. They always took time and care to give the fans a little something extra. And it's just the, a show that I always loved. You know, just a, a great representation of the X-Men comics of the time and a, a show that I, I still love. Mm. They did make a lot of toys, though. Yeah, and you <laughs> know, it was, it was funny because Toy Biz, which was owned by Marvel put out a line of figures, I want to say 1991. Yep. And that first series really mirrored the comics at the time. You know, it was the X-Factor version of Cyclops. Uh, Colossus was in there. Uh, a black costume Storm. A brown costume Wolverine. But as the X-Men series took off, those uh, figures started to kind of mirror what was happening in the show. So, like, Corsair would become a figure all of a sudden because he appeared on the show. You know, characters like that. So, even though it wasn't directly the merchandising tie-in of the show, it was really the uncanny X-Men figures, it gradually started to become just the toy line for the show. And, yeah, I, I didn't care. I collected them no matter what. But, yeah, you know, I, I remember there was like a whole lot of... Uh, different variations. I mean, I, I mean, they did have a lot of uh, again variation. Again, yeah, variations, variations on figures. Because yeah, the first line was not really based on the cartoon, and the second line was based on the cartoon more and more. Yeah. Uh, and they all had those. Like they all had to have some sort of gimmick. <laughs> I remember. Yeah. I think it was that Storm had a light light up chest, like yep. she had like a, a a lightning bolt on a chest that lit up. Uh, Cyclops had a his eyes would light up. Wolverine had his extendable his claws. Uh, I'm not sure what Beast or Jean had. Well, see, the weird thing was Jean never got a figure. It wasn't w way until later when they actually did make for the Onslaught uh, comic book series, Onslaught figures, and they finally made a Jean Grey, but she was six inches instead of the five inches that the rest of the X-Men mm. were. So if you wanted, like, all the X-Men like I did as a kid, your Jean Grey would be so much taller than everybody else. It was so weird. <laughs> Uh, they they did make a Phoenix figure, mm. and they, they made a really lousy Jean Grey later on. But yeah, it's just, uh, it was weird that they didn't make a Jean. That's odd. Beast didn't come until much later also. It, I loved how his power was, he had this weird dial on his back, and it like increased these um, rubber bands, I guess, that were inside of his legs. And you're supposed to push down on his back, and he does a backflip. And of course, that <laughs> never worked. <laughs> Yeah, but that's like the, the, the multitude of uh, Spider-Man animated series figures. Like they made, like they really didn't work out how to make it look like he's web swinging. So they made like so many different variations. Like there's one with like um, 
a Spider-Man with like a stiff arm that just fires like a, a web. And there's another one where it's like it's a Spider-Man, but he's like he's in. I guess it's like a spread spread eagle, spread arm starfish look. Yep. And you had these two strings that would, like, you'd pull one and he'd slide up, and then you pull the other and he'd slide up the other. So he'd kind of slide between these two strings <laughs> that connect to his hands. But yeah, I remember that as a kid, there's a whole uh, variation in those figures, and they'd make so many different versions of Wolverine. Like, I think, yeah, there was like the, uh, the brown and yellow outfit mm-hmm. for Wolverine, and then there was the comic book one or slash tv show one where it's like the yellow it's got, it, it looks like his original appearance hulk outfit but they've updated it made it look better yeah uh and then there was was it the maskless wolverine and then there was wolverine in casual clothes because yeah i have the wolverine figure somewhere uh where it's him in like an x-men outfit uniform and he still have his claws but he also has his face that's revealed <laughs> so you know that was <laughs> that was a figure that was never shown in the. I think, oh, I think it was never really done in the cartoon. I'm not sure in the comic books though. Maybe once or twice in the comic books. Yeah. But, you know, he has like the official uniform of the X Men, which is always that yellow and blue look. Yeah, it was strange because those Toy Biz lines, they always had to have a variation of Wolverine every time they put out a new line. And they started to go so crazy with them that they weren't even in the comics anymore, you know, and they mm. had, uh, they even had variant paint jobs of like, you know, Weapon X, not Wep- oh yeah, Weapon X Wolverine had two different color wires and then there was the uh, Special Ops Wolverine that was black and gold or green and copper, depending on which one you got, but he was marketable, you know? Yeah, it was marketable. That's like that's that's the main draw card of all these figures, and they kept on making those toys, even though I think after the show had finished and there was like a bit of a hi- hiatus, they kept on making those extreme action figures. Yeah. All right, now I I got to play this for you, Hamish. This is embarrassing, but I I have to for the listeners for the podcast. I, I figured I'd dig this out. I found <laughs> an old cassette tape, and what happened was my friends used to have this broken tape recorder, and it used to record people slowed down. And like, so we used to always have fun messing around with it and having a deeper voice. And because I loved this cartoon so much and I loved Cyclops and I loved Apocalypse, I I did my own little X-Men skit and I I actually was able to find it before we recorded. So I, I just wanted to play you a little bit of this. Sure, go ahead. Juggernaut, Black Tom, Dead 
Ghost right as big as our army. Huh. He's an only child. Well, anyway, I'll talk to you <laughs> Let me interview the guys, yeah. This is a slow down uh, tape recording, right? <laughs> oh, yeah. Let me interview Sabretooth. <laughs> Hi, I'm Sabretooth. Sabretooth. <laughs> uh, now to interview Apocalypse. Oh, I am the Apocalypse. Nobody can match me. How old are you, Apocalypse? One billion, million, trillion, zillion <laughs> years old. Oh, oh, oh. oh yeah. Oh. <laughs> Interviewing myself. Oh, I'm sorry. Um, who are you? <laughs> I'm Juggernaut. <laughs> I'm going to lie. You, you're fat. I know. All right, that's enough of that. <laughs> you say you're fat? Yeah. <laughs> and, the, and the only reply Juggernaut has is like, I know. <laughs> Must have been about twelve years old, eleven years old, and yeah, a lot of boredom. No, nah, it's pretty accurate. You know, <laughs> I, th- I, th- I think being mostly most of those characters, especially Sabretooth. The Sabretooth one sounds the best on tape. I gotta say that holds up. I, I I'm impressed with my with my young yeah. self. Yeah, his <laughs> his dialogue, as in, well, the the snarling in his voice sounds great, but I think his dialogue going Sabretooth rules. <laughs> It just—it just sounds like that's the reason why Wolverine hates him. It's because he keeps just showboating like that. That's true. And plus, I wasn't a good of a writer as uh, Chris Claremont, so you know what can I say? Uh, at twelve years old, we weren't all good <laughs> writers. But you know, I can—I can imagine Wolverine coming—you know—coming into the X Mansion, going, "Ah, I hate that guy." <laughs> Every time I see him, he's always like, "Ah, I'm Sabretooth. I rule." <laughs> I don't know what to say to the guy. <laughs> ah. Oh, man. All right, well, on that note, that'll pretty much do it for this episode of Hitting Play. As always, you can email us with your comments, suggestions, your mutant power, whatever you got for us at hittingplayshow at gmail.com, or you can talk to us on Twitter at Hitting Play. Now, Hamish, do you have anything you want to plug? Uh, you can find me on Twitter at Sartan Hamish, Instagram at Sartan Hamish, Facebook at Sartan Hamish Art, uh, on Vine, Sartan Hamish, also on the street. Randomly, if you're walking around Melbourne, you'll probably find me there. You know, I, I once bumped into a friend of mine at a petrol station when he was washing his car. So, you know, that happens. <laughs> has, has no relevance to this, but you know, uh, yeah, if you want to find me, I'm on, all over the internets. Very good. Uh, I'm on Twitter as well. My name there is at MC and Friends. You can follow me there. I am also on Vine, and there my name is MC and Friends, and there I do flip page cartoons and little humorous animations. Also, if you listen to us on iTunes, please subscribe and leave us a five-star review. It really helps us out, and if you do, you will get a shout-out on the show. For Android users, we are also available to stream and or download on Stitcher. We can be found on TuneIn Radio, and we are now on the Google Play Music app, so check us out on those platforms. 
Well, we have been Hamish and Scott, and this has been Hitting Play. Thank you so much for listening. We have to go back for more. <laughs>